uh, on the behalf of the Pan American Center Women's Committee, uh, the evening of satire, outrage, and invective. I'm Barbara Ehrenreich, and I'm the moderator uh, for tonight. Uh, we have some very wild women here tonight. Uh, women who deal in satire, invective, fantasy, nastiness, and a category that the organizers of the evenings, this evening's event called Outrage. Uh, I myself uh, am a writer of what I now understand, having immersed myself in some of their writings in the last <laughs> few days, as a, to be a very conventional, old-fashioned form of satire, usually on kind of political and topical matters. Uh, such as the man shortage, demanding a recount, that kind of thing, um, or the enfranchisement of the fetus, other topical things. So in reading works of some of the women we have here tonight, I was um, fascinated to see that it's possible to write satire on themes that are not topical but deep and universal. Um, like, just to give you an example from some of these, uh, a couple of the writers here have concerned themselves with the intense relationships that women have with dogs, or also bears and other animals. Um, and I'm, you know, very curious. I'm going to ask tonight, uh, is that a metaphor for something? <laughs> I mean, is there something else going on when the woman-animal relationship gets um, highlighted so much? Or a story I recall by one of the authors here about a man whose penis is so long he has to tuck it into his shoe or he'll trip all the time. So again, I'm wondering, is that a metaphor? <laughs> Could we learn, what will we learn? It's an old joke we used to tell when we were kids. <laughs> it's a joke, okay. Anyway, um, I, hope you realize, I hope you all realize that this is what a very special and subversive event this is. Historically, when men have engaged in satire, or its grassroots version, which is called sarcasm, invective and outrage, um, when men do it, it's called discourse. Uh, or oratory, or commentary, or even diplomacy. Or intercourse. <laughs> or intercourse, she says. <laughs> I can't even get control of this panel yet. <laughs> anyway, when men do it, it's called those things. When women have engaged in the same kinds of writing or speaking, it is historically called blasphemy, bitchiness, hysteria, heresy, or PMS. Um, but tonight, uh, we are in charge, and tonight we will call it art. So uh, I want to begin. Uh, we're going to have each person, each woman here is going to read and then say some things about her work, anything she wants, and then we're, it's going to be a general discussion, and you should be all thinking of what you'd like to um, ask or um, engage these women in. So I want to start by introducing Rosalind Drexler. Uh, who's sitting right here to my right, is the author um, of many novels and plays. Among the novels are Bad Guy, The Cosmopolitan Girl, I Am the Beautiful Stranger, and among the plays she's written are The Line of Least Existence, The Investigation, the Investigation and Hot Buttered Roll, one no, title. Those were, no, there were two plays oh. early on, very young plays. Okay, anyway, those are two. Hot Buttered Roll is separate. And Transient's Welcome, and then I'm going to read two nice quotes about her. For, this is from a review in the New York Times. It said, quote, she has a feel for style and idiom that highlights the craziness without parodying it. Her world is a kind of contemporary wonderland in which bizarre people say very serious things. 
Her style has an artless directness like a child pulling off a butterfly's wings while singing Frere Jacques. The bizarre becomes normal in this world of hers. Evil and innocence coexist with equal weight and vividness as in a dream. And then one more quote, this is good. It says, <laughs> from the Boston Globe, it says, Rosalind Drexler is a revelation. She is uproarious, inane, raucous, howling, extravagant, extravagant and scatological in the craziest imaginable way. Actually, I'm going to move my chair a little bit now. <laughs> so Rosalind Drexler. Okay. It's, obvious, it's obvious I brought the wrong book. You know? This is not about the relationship of a dog to a woman or anything like that. This is about um, um, a, a woman who's uh, the lead singer of a rock group called um, the Great Mother Goddess Cult. And, um, and her group, they're in, in this hotel now. And it was hard to pick a little part from it, but here it is anyway. And this is uh, her speaking. My birthday, it was my birthday, and I was holed up at the Regency with the Great. Martine asked, how you doing? I feel like a goose that's got a two-foot arrow sticking out of her tail. Man, I ain't never going to fly again. Oh, yeah? Martine turned the wastebasket upside down and drummed on it. It's your party, and you can cry if you want to, cry if you want to. There was a knock on the door, and a birthday cake arrived, carried by the baker himself. Ruth, Anna, and Martine had thought it would cheer me up. The cake had eight layers and was in the shape of a guitar. My name, written in buttercream, took the place of strings. The baker's assistant right behind him was carrying a Polaroid. The baker asked for permission to pose with me for a photo. I said, sure, why not? And Ruth took the picture. My daughter's crazy about you, the baker said. She used to want to be a pastry cook. No, she wants to be just like you. Send her around, I said. I'll talk to her. She'll change her mind fast. When he had gone, I smashed my fist into the cake. Who ordered this crap? <laughs> Martine lied. Hotel sent it up as a courtesy. I just happened to mention it was your birthday. Don't you like it? It's fucking embarrassing, that's what. I don't eat sweets anyway. I threw fistfuls of the cake at the mirror. Martine and Anna joined me. Only Ruth held back. It's wasteful, Ruth said. Then what do you suggest we do with it, I asked. I suggest we get some cute little groupies up here to share it with us, Ruth answered. Yeah, who we call? You got any good numbers, Anna asked, scratching her fly. Damn zipper, I'm sensitive to zippers, make me itch. Ever had an itch to live, Ruth punned. I got an itch to live right now, cunt. Come on, where are those numbers? Ruth teased, do you want guys or gals? I'm going to sleep, I threatened. Martine got on the phone, Ruth dialed, her long black fingernails clicking in and out of the dial. I often wondered how she was able to feel the piano keys. Hi, is this David? Martine asked, is it? Well, David, you never guess who this is. No, it's Martine Miami. No shit. Well, honest to goodness, yeah. Say, this isn't just a conversational call. No, say, we're just sitting around scratching asses here at the Regency. Yeah, so we thought we'd get a party going. Right, you got it. So why don't we send the limo for you, say, half an hour? What? Why'd we pick you? Man, if I remember correctly, you're a dynamite lay. You don't know about that shit, don't worry, so long as you're not looted out when you get here. No, I'm not putting you on. I'm not running a game on you. Look, when you see the limo, you'll believe it. And listen, there's four of us, so bring along some friends. What's your address? Mmm, got it. Terrific. Martine slammed the receiver down. Girls, we got a fucking stud on the way. Maybe more. Boy, am I horny. Ruth took a douche in the shower, Anna drew a black star on her forehead, and Martine rubbed essence of roses into the crease between her buttocks. 
That'll surprise him, Martine said. Wouldn't it be wonderful if life was really like that? Like roses growing where you don't expect them to? Oh, wow. The studs did not arrive. David had given Martine the wrong address. The limo waited there half an hour before returning to the front of the hotel empty. I hadn't wanted to fuck the little looters anyway. I was worried about the album. Ruth, Martine, and Anna got into bed together and bawled each other. I sat and watched the Performer of the Year awards on TV. It was terrible. Finally, I kind of flipped out and began yelling at the three members of my group who were supposedly in the throes of ecstasy. Sure, I want to sell a million records, freak out at Caribou Lodge, snort coke, ball all day, drive my car into the pool, but I'm not so sure we're going to do it with goddess goodies. Anyway, I've had enough of this rock shit and roll shit and revolving door shit, and I jumped on the bed, shook Martine by the shoulder. Why don't one of you parasites freeze the water in the bathtub for me so that I can go ice skating? Ain't I a celebrity? Out of that crummy evening came one of our all-time big hits, Celebrated Lady. Celebrated lady don't need nobody. She don't trust anybody. She won't let him get close. Celebrated lady don't see nobody, even though it's her party, so she's left all alone. Unlisted telephone and dark glasses hide her eyes. Hired limousine, diamond tears, cocaine nose, lilac hair, crayon toes, because celebrated lady don't need nobody. She don't trust anybody. She won't let him get close. Martine threatened to shave off all her frizzy orange hair if we took, if we took on the Missouri gig. So Susan booked us into Olive Oil's pit factory in Brooklyn. The walls were crumbling and sprayed with graffiti. There wasn't one chair in the place that had all four legs, said he. Tables were sticky, and the whole club smelled like cat piss. An inspired choice for our trash bash kind of stuff. Big enough for a minor revolution and dark enough so that our last number would shake the patrons. Before I first said a space punkette thinking I was truly terrible of the free fall, begged me for some morphine. When I told her to get lost, she climbed up a dirty old curtain next to the stage and fell off, broke her ankle, suffered a concussion, and was carried off. The management, a straight, degenerate business type, remarked, Look at them hot punk chicks. So hot, it's got them climbing the walls. Martine came at him mad as hell. Say, I'll bet you'd like some great head tonight, right? Sure, he answered enthusiastically. She passed close to him, breathed into his face. There's no stopping cretins from being cretinous, is there? Let's blitzkrieg him, Anna screamed. I held her back. She, let's do the gig, take the money, and run. The gaffers set up, assembling the amp banks and testing the mics. We wanted the amps up as high as they could get. The light man climbed a ladder and adjusted the spots that were right above the stage. Took 20 minutes to get the technical stuff right. Meantime, some of the audience kept busy popping pills, a favorite recipe being two Dexies, half a Coke, one beer, and a Mars bar. Then the rush... A few people on pogo sticks bounced around a small cleared space looking like fallen bats. Punk ladies adjusted their night-out nighties and spit-cleaned their white stiletto pumps. An androgyne from the sticks, wrapped in yellow vinyl and wearing clown makeup, blew bubbles from a plastic bubble pipe. A freaky photographer kept taking pictures of a girl who told him not to do it and slapped him in the face after each click of the shutter. The sleaze is out in full regalia, I said. Ruth nodded in agreement. Yeah, a bunch of rejects from the geek factory. When we took the stage for our first set at 11 p.m., pandemonium reigned. Some punkettes and a local drunk had a fight over a can of beer. Punches were thrown, a chair sailed through the air, and an unlucky kid toppled over backwards in punk ecstasy, cutting his head open on the corner of a table. 
It was frontier days all over again, straight shooters, gamblers, and whores, with us mining the rich mother load. Ladies and gentlemen, I hollered over the mic, get your asses down and let us up here do what we came to do. You gotta help. It's everyone's duty to tear down the walls of the rock and roll industrial complex. Jagger kisses royal ass. With that, the audience let out a roar, whistled and settled down. I had them. I understood their tacky yearnings. So we were raunchy and mean with the red light behind us like an emergency exit bulb. Ruth had slicked her hair down with a widow's peak and had shaved her eyebrows. Martine's orange hair surrounded her pale face like a religious aura. Anna, blonde and bedraggled, had finger-combed her stringy hair and put a giant blue bow in it. I was Ms. Brown and Curly. Sex Bomb opened the set, an aggressive stage attack that had me shrieking into the mic and cutting across my guitar with unprecedented energy. The words came out like bullets. Ruth crashed down on the piano keys, full body force. Sex Bomb, how'd you get on this plane? Crash. Sex Bomb, just the sight of you blows me apart. Crash. Blows my fucking brain. Wow. Crash. Martine punctuated the proceedings with apocalyptic symbols. Anna thumbed the double bass like a paramedic over a stopped heart. But the song didn't come to life. The audience was tough. Bright eyes stared out of spotty, unwashed, pimply, pallid skins. The applause was also spotty, and the usual list of insults hurled. This sort of thing had in the past turned Anna into an inhuman dynamo of sweaty, trembling flesh. To prevent senseless murder, I signaled for us to go right into Grandma, I'm just a little girl at heart. We had a syrupy arrangement as if we were going to flash on chocolate-covered cherries and gingerbread men. But when we got to the part about the abortion, everything went haywire and out of tune, terrifically effective. I got so carried away, I was slinging the guitar around, forgot to put my hands in the right places, played a fret above where I was supposed to. Nobody noticed the bum notes. It was such a convincing performance. If it had been shitty, I'd have known it. The pressure was on. I could feel it. Knew that something special was going to happen. We went through celebrated lady, if you want to live with me, hypodermic skin erection, the man in white, and then came to our big production onslaught. First we went to one bright bulb, glaring above our heads, blinding the audience. Then that went off and a soft green light bathed the stage. Dry ice smoke billowed up around our legs till it was waist high. At that point the house went black and the first chord was struck with thundering intensity. The threat of the song cut through the dark. Gimme. Gimme, gimme your life. You already half dead anyway. Shiny with hairspray, dull on downers all day. Sit there and count your fingers, little punk. Gimme, gimme, gimme your life. You already half dead anyway. Slowly the lights came up on us and a stuffed cotton corpse covered with vinyl that had been placed on a platform. Martine and Anna did a kind of scary rhythm execution Haitian beat while Ruth and me performed a devil exodus ritual over the dummy. The vinyl sheet that covered our prop had hidden pockets that contained fake blood, animal gizzards, chicken hearts, and beef liver. Ruth held a knife over the sacrifice. I reached in and pulled out all the prepared gory guck while chanting, What else is there to do? Little punk, you're through. Who'd drink tequila out of your shoe? Who'd smoke your insecticide boo? And who'd swim through scum to make love to you? Little punk, you're through. A hot red spot hit the platform. We gathered in the spooky bloodlight. Gimme, gimme, gimme your life. You're already half dead anyway. Shiny with hairspray, dull on downers all day. Sit there and count your fingers, little punk. Gimme, gimme, gimme your life. You're already half dead anyway. Some punks really freaked out, felt insulted as if the song was about them, and it was. <laughs> gimme your life was relevant to the scene, a sneering song about boring victims. I was accused of being a two-bit counterclockwise cunt and offered suicide as an alternative to being lynched. The club bouncer shouted for the crowd to push back. Come on, move it. You're blocking the exits. Show don't continue till you get back. 
The crowd was arrogant, unstable, refused to obey. The gaffers began to shove them back. The house lights went up. Someone fell and got stamped on. Panic grew. A jerk yelled, fire! And the panic became a stampede. Customers who had been waiting outside for more than an hour to hear the last show were amazed to see the previous audience rush out with such speed, pushing and shoving whoever was in their way. We abandoned our instruments on stage till the situation cooled off. I felt great. The audience's response had left nothing to be desired. Once again, art proved itself a potent force. The word, especially when set to music, is always capable of releasing violent emotions. What further proof did I need? A hungry-looking reporter, pushy as reporters are, begged me for an in interview as I stood at the bar drinking my beer. He worked for Got Guts, a new and at that time under-underground punk publication. Got Guts claimed that it was printed on recycled, unwashed skin that had been discarded after much use. Question, would you consider giving a man the opportunity to play alongside you in a band? Me. You gotta be kidding. Men always end up getting involved with someone in the band, and then the band is finished. Why? Because then those two people live in a walnut shell away from the rest of us. It's not democratic. I think men are take over cats and difficult to work with. I'm a real feminist chauvinist, totally. I don't want any male to touch my music. Okay, I've heard Tchaikovsky use some of his notes. I even respect VD for the psychedelic folk influence. But outside of the great mother goddess cult, I'd say Alice B. Toglass is going in an important original direction. For instance, those long free tongue passages and instrumental suck impressions, exploring an immaculate perception of sound. That's what music's all about, isn't it? Even when we're aggressive and deadpan, we're agents of the angels. Exterminating angels? Yeah, but we do the killing for our fans. Okay. Do what? I have two or three minutes. Um, gee, uh, to I, I have nothing to talk about. Um, no, I'm starting a new book. Is that something to talk about? <laughs> okay. No, I think I'll let it. Let someone else have the three minutes. Okay. Well, we'll come back to you, I'm sure. We'll have some things to ask about that. Okay. <laughs> then uh, next uh, person who's going to... Um, to read and talk is Carol M. Schweller, who has long enjoyed a reputation as a leading fantasist and experimental writer. Uh, her books include a novel entitled Carmen Dog and uh, two collections of stories, Joy in Our Cause and Verging on the Pertinent. She teaches writing at NYU. Uh, her stories are, well, whimsical um, and uh, have a tongue-in-cheek quality, but I I want to read you a couple of quotes. This is um, some blurbs from Carmen Dog that I, I think are nice. Um, Grace Paley uh, said, I've loved Carmen, uh, Carol Emshwiller's book uh, work for years. Her imagination is fierce and funny, never mean. And this from Anatole Broyard at the New York Times. Her stories are as unpredictable as a man or woman who has never been crippled by a culture. Like that. <laughs> Carol? <laughs> No, I hope I live up to that. <laughs> That's great. I hate going after you, Roz. <laughs> I'm not a dual gag. <laughs> I'm also, I think you were referring to me when you were talking about the penis down into the shoe. I'm not going to read that one. Okay. Either. I, um, <laughs> maybe I should change. Um, it's hard for me to pick out, uh, something to read because all my things are too long. So I mutilated 
a story. And uh, in some places it got kind of lumpy, but in other places it got better than ever <laughs> being cut. Um, but uh, I hope the lumps don't, don't uh, I hope they don't bother you too much. It's called The Promise of Undying Love. We have always yearned for great men. We have been impressed by them, dazzled, spellbound. We have hoped to have a truly great man of our own one day. Dressed in our best, we have gone where great men go. We have watched them from, from the balconies of theaters and concert halls, watched them on TV. We have sat in their classes and agreed with them desperately. <laughs> Sent them admiring letters, called them up. We have always felt that the achieving of an achieving man was worth any amount of pain and trouble. Sometimes we have concentrated so hard on great men that the great men themselves have seen our interest in our eyes. And this has paid off occasionally. And some of us have had, at least for a little while, the company of a great, or more likely, near-great man. But usually our attempts to contact the great and near-great fail, and we have to turn to ordinary men. Certainly this is true in the long run, after we have lost our good looks, that is. Our needs, however, are even greater then, but we have less hope of satisfying them, so we have to make do with what is available, have to kiss lesser cheeks, lesser lips, make do with less money, have to choose the larger and or most beautiful of two or three lesser penises. <laughs> Often, for want of a great man, we have pushed our sons towards greatness as best we could. But can one exist without a great man? One is alive, that's about all. One goes about one's business trapped in the everyday. We have resolved that this should no longer be true. Now we will bring great men down among us. We will treat them almost like we treat everyone else. Kiss them, hold hands, pinch them, tickle them, lean on their arm, slap and giggle. But not anymore just any great man. We want the greatest. <laughs> that we could slap, giggle, tickle, and pinch the greatest man of all. As mentioned, most attempts to contact great and near-great end in failure. How much more difficult it will be, then, to capture the greatest man of all, but how much more rewarding, too? Uh, big jump now. There is an important clue to his possible whereabouts. The great man had been known to say on numerous occasions that he wanted to find a warm valley or the breezy top of a mountain or that he wanted to recover from a long illness and be nursed back to health by strangers, that he wanted to wake up with total amnesia, wanted to parachute from a plane into a jungle or be washed up on a foreign shore. In short, wanted to rise up new and fresh without all the old bad habits, the old tics and grimaces. And who among us, man or woman, hasn't wished the same? Now we must put ourselves in that same position, strike out blindly into forests, crash land on islands, be washed up on some foreign shore or other. Except we must be wary. There will be impostors. Many men may be almost as large as the great man himself and wearing the same rumpled brown suits, 
brutal and morose, sad and selfish. We must not inadvertently fall in love with some slightly lesser version of the man. One of the questions that comes instantly to mind, of course, is will we be able to be happy with a man of this sort? But we never expected the great to be easy to live with. We know the great are selfish. How could they have become so great without that? And we're willing to put up with it. In fact, we have been trained for this from the beginning, taught to put up with almost anything for the other advantages, but mainly that our love will have found an object worthy of it. We have a dossier with several photographs of the greatest man of all at several different stages of his life. And we have a list of moles, scars, ticks, and mannerisms. Having studied this dossier, I was in love with the greatest man already, also with his moles, ticks, scars, etc., even or especially in love with his faults. The crooked teeth, for instance, are adorable to me. But years must pass until I find myself at this age I am right now, no longer beautiful, if ever, but in a different kind of prime than just good looks, a wiry, rugged, thin, and sunburned prime. I have returned again and again to and through towns, cities, forests, islands, until at last I come upon another teeming shore with another symbolic leaky boat pulled up beyond the tide line, another flight of vast stone steps, another avenue with cherry trees in bloom. And now, having mounted the steps, not to see the president himself, but to see the man behind the president, not figuratively speaking, but the man who is standing behind the president right now, here to unveil his most monumental work. He has been, it is clear, in plain sight all the while, only gone off for a short vacation and come back long ago, no doubt while I was scrambling around on the top of some mountain and didn't hear about it. All my life has been a preparation for this moment. But now, when it comes right down to it, I have no plan or procedure. I have not taken time out to search, to get ready for the actual confrontation. What to do, what to say. And suddenly, the words pour out. You see me, I say, not as I was, but as you've made me. If I have sacrificed the best years of my life, and I have, it has been for your sake. What I am now, nothing but skin and bone and muscle, is all your fault. But can it be that we are already quarreling or about to, depending on what he will say? Perhaps I should try to stop talking, if only for a moment. I have a view of his crotch from here, where I stand below him on the steps. The thighs are huge. The brown pants sag, especially just there in the center. It is the crotch at eye level that I have been speaking to. I dare... I do not dare speak to the eyes. When I look at them, I see that he is a failure, or at least he thinks so. And these steps, they are not the steps 
of the Capitol building, and not even those of the Cultural Center, but other lesser steps, though almost as long. I have no sympathy for him. After all, if he is a failure, then I too have failed. You must do something for me, I say, because I have been deeply wronged by you already. How can we get better acquainted if I keep reiterating this complaint? But how not speak out? This man could have changed my life any time he wanted to, simply by coming into view. Why has he kept himself away until he too has grown old? I'm, but I'm too tired to care. For want of a better idea then, and partially in order to stop the flow of my own words, I fall at his feet, I hope, into a small and desirable bundle. He comes daintily down the next few steps, lifts me up. I will let myself be taken anywhere. He limps, he shuffles with me in his soft, fat arms, on down and out to the beach not far beyond. I'm thinking, how about if we both drift out in a boat with no oars? How about the two of us washed up on some shore? How about both of us with amnesia or high fevers found by the natives of a lovely valley or of another planet? Let him take me where he will. I'm tired of thinking for myself. I think he knows what I know, that he has finally met the woman meant for him because, in his eyes, the lost dog look. <laughs> but he is carrying me on past the boat. No, no, I say, the boat. Put me in the boat. <laughs> he turns around, a glimmer of hope on his face, and starts to put me in it. Silly man, silly man, I say, push off first. And he, put, he puts me down and does, the surf washing at his pant legs. Then he puts me in and seems to think to turn me loose in the waves alone. But I won't let go. I have a good grip on his lapel with one hand and on his beard with the other. He struggles. He is leaning on the gunnels, and I am too near the edge myself. The boat teeters sideways and then goes over, hitting him on the head and knocking us both into the waves. I rescue him. Large as he is, I pull him up on shore. It's a good thing. I've had all these years of hardships to tone my muscles. <laughs> I lie down beside him in my rightful place at last. If I'm lucky, maybe when he wakes up, he will not remember anything. Here, in each other's arms, we will have a new beginning. Perhaps this is our foreign shore already. I forgive you, I whisper in his ears, in his ear. I forgive you everything that's happened so far. <laughs> How much time do I have? Oh, okay. Um, Okay, I have a couple of things uh, about my writing that I wanted to say. Um, I, ha I don't think about what I do very much, but when this panel came along, I started thinking and I started looking for something to write, I mean to read. And um, I realized that although I'd been called a, a satirical feminist, that the feminist part of it bothered me. And I didn't know why. 
And it's always bothered me, and I couldn't figure out why, and I still really don't know why, but I have thought about it a lot. Anyway, I'm not sure I found the real reasons. Um, I think, um, let me go back to reading <laughs> what I've got here. Um, I do know a little bit about more about what, uh, what I was doing. I mean, why I don't want to be a feminist. I think being a feminist is too limiting. And when I look back over my work, I was really happy to see that I made as much fun of men, I mean of women, as I did with men. And that's one reason why I wanted to read this particular story, because I think it's making fun of women. Uh, more than men. And I know most of my things are feminist, but lots of them make just as much fun of women. In my novel, Carmen Dog, um, it's been called a feminist novel, and of course it is, basically. But my heroine is a dog woman, and she has all the characteristics of a good dog, which are the same as the ones of a good woman. She's loyal, trustworthy, well-trained, she's pedigreed, obedient, kind, and considerate. Pooch sometimes spelled P-U-C-C-I, since she wants to sing opera, is all that might be desired in an old-fashioned woman. She'll not make any trouble. She's just what every man wants, except maybe she's just what everybody wants. Everybody would like a wife like that, no matter man or woman. Um, another reason why I'm uncomfortable with the feminist uh, label is that, that I think, well, as we as we're all know now, that that... I think men have a lot of problems, too, as we know. And sometimes, some of the things, I think women are lucky in some ways. Um, they're lucky to be the, the, the caretakers of children. I think men miss out on that. And I think that we'd be, women would be happier if we got more, what do you call it, more, what's the word? More ego, more, more, um, Money. admiration, money, and money for doing these kind of things, but we're still, we're still lucky to be the ones to look after kids in a way. Um, although men are doing that more now. Um, okay. Oh, what I want to say also is that, that uh, in thinking about satire, um, in Carmen Dog, I was satirizing uh, the form itself. The, the adventure plot. And this gave me the opportunity, of course, of using it and yet not taking it seriously. I love this form. And every chapter ends in a cliffhanger. And you, in this uh, novel, you can't extract a single part of it uh, to read separately. It's all one strand. Every time I read it, um, I have to start from the beginning. There's no way of taking a piece out of it. I've tried. Um, in this case, I was satirizing what I love. And that made me wonder, a lot of wonderings about satire. And I haven't got the answers, but maybe we can talk more about it. I was wondering if we do satirize what we love a lot of times. I was wondering if we're, we're certainly enmeshed in what we satirize. Uh, I think maybe it's a love-hate relationship. Maybe we satirize the things we love that have betrayed us. These are just wonderings. Um, so that's about all I have to say. Oops. I don't know, Carol. You sound like a feminist to me. <laughs> I know. I always do. <laughs> but um, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Um, the, the next um, person who is going to... Um, 
talking is Sophia Henderson Holmes, who is a poet and fiction writer who has taught at Sarah Lawrence and is now teaching at Syracuse University. Her first book of poems was Madness and a Bit of Hope, uh, which will be appearing um, from writers and readers at the end of October, which is now. Did it appear? I don't have it, but oh, it should be. But now. it appeared. Okay, it should be out Any of minute now. in the bookstores <laughs> Absolutely. soon. Okay, and her poetry has, all, has appeared in um, Black Scholar, Essence, and other places. She has a story in Terry McMillan's new anthology, Breaking Ice. She is a recipient of um, CAPS and a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowships for Poetry. And she is a cultural activist who works with Madre, which is a group that does uh, support work for women and children in Central America, and with Artists Against Apartheid. Sophia. Thank you. Um, I guess for the first two poems, I'm going to change um, the mood just a little bit. Um, I don't know if this is dealing with the out rage part of the evening. But the first poem uh, I'd like to read is entitled Journey and is dedicated to two sisters, hearts, loves, real good comrades and friends of mine, and um, workers and board members and believers in Madre. That's uh, Kathy Engel and Vivian Stromberg. So this is entitled Journey. One, what do we take with us on a journey into ourselves? What pieces of us do we pack, unpack, fold neatly in our fists, under tongues? On this migration, we must travel light, assuming we can. But everything we own has become heavy weighted by memory and desires to remember more. Touch the space below the belly, hollows beneath the eyes, curves in ears, slopes of backs, all having carried and forced in much. The luggage of years in our thighs and hips, ankles puffed with wishes of flight to do this journey as bird, winged, determined. Our course charted each season, but we are not bird. Our skin thick doesn't fall easily from us. We pick and peel to the next layer, enter ourselves cautiously with our old sweet flesh dragging behind. Two. Two friends of mine, women, Jewish, mothers of daughters, went into the desert and thirst of their hearts, Palestine, where stones are thrown and bullets absorbed as rain, where soldiers are trees and houses rootless, Palestine. Vivian had been to this heart of her before. The first visit coated her tongue, making her speechless. The occupying of bones, the occupying of nerves pulled her skin taut. It was hard for Vivian to leave, hard for Vivian to return, to open her mouth against her breasts and hear herself scream the names of dead and dying children, Lulu, Palestine. Kathy had never been, but had heard the soldiers' voices in her pulse, pushing her, rushing her breath, Palestine. Kathy entered through her back, 
as her grandmother's dreams continue to rise and fall, as childhood memories of Jewish laws and loves stay pressed between her bones, she entered slowly on her hands and knees, along her spine, along the fiber of the word traitor. With a picture of her daughter under her tongue, strands of her sister's hair around her neck, crawling to herself, Palestine. And these women watched as bread was stomped into the sand of them, as water was sucked from their eyes, as their arms jumped to catch falling women, as their legs jerked and ran from guns, as their hands squeezed the stones, Palestine, Palestine. As they bit the fear in their lips and tasted their sweat in the ovens of Gaza, their blood in the wine, Palestine, three. And as we pick and peel the layers of ourselves, entering marrow, tasting our bitter beginnings, bitter endings, we learn the depths of our wounds and our ever-present need to heal, ever-present need to be well, four. Kathy and Vivian, in their sleep, in their sex, smell themselves, aroma of burnt flesh, aroma of freshly baked bread, Palestine, oh, Palestine. Bravely, they hold themselves, every piece, every remarkable piece. They're offering for Seda. They're offering for Salat. The next piece is also still a little bit in this mode, or mood. It's for um, some children in Romania. And I don't know if, you know, you know the story or saw the 2020 report of the castaway locked up, done away with children. Anyway, this poem is entitled For Romania's Clubbed Foot Son and All the Locked Children of the World, a love poem. Dear Romania, your son, the one with the clubbed foot, wants to make mad, passionate love to you. Yes, he has escaped from his cage in Bucharest, dressed in your colorful flag, and runs toward your narrow bed to enter you. He wants to twist his foot and unfed tongue into you, wants you to scream and wants to scream into his ear ringing bells, begging you to slow down, begging him to stop, and allow you, small, helpless, inexperienced Romania, to catch your breath, your heart. Prepare yourself for such madness, you caught so unaware. But Romania, you know this son of yours. He has been on television, in newspapers threatening to lay with you. Yes, that one, the one from the barbed wire box. Odd one, shaven, untouched head one. Anemic, sunken chest and hidden one. He smiles and calls your name in his sleep. You know him and his loud brothers and sisters, whatever their names, whenever they were born. Yes, them. The ones who cradle their elbows and knees, sit and rock over your excrement and theirs. Yes, them, your crazy ones, licking urine and tears. Your funny other sons and daughters, singing to walls and windows over mania. Yes, them, sucking on barbiturates and hunger. 
They all have dreams of having you, taste you on the tips of their fingers. But one rambunctious son, Romania, the one with the foot curved like a fist, is running from his night into yours, smelling your senseless sex. He runs wildly, ripping your flag and your rules, awakening towns and the world closer. He is closer to your bed. Soon he will be there loving you to death. And you will moan, Romania. You will moan. Been out of the mood of that and going into this series called Good Housekeeping. This is Good Housekeeping number 13. She wanted a pretty kitchen. Yes, she did. She wanted a real-life pretty kitchen. She really, really did. Wanted it unlike her mama's and unlike her grandma's and unlike the neighbors down home. So she painted her kitchen walls sun's, sunrise orange, and she painted her kitchen cabinets sunset orange, and she shopped in this store and that store, trying to find the right shade of burnt orange table and chairs and curtains and linoleum. And she begged and cried to her landlord for the closest thing to twilight orange that he could find for a refrigerator and stove. She threatened to withhold her rent if he didn't comply, said if he did, he, she'd consider letting him see the frog-shaped mole on her thigh. Oh, she wanted a pretty kitchen, a real life pretty, pretty kitchen. And she looked in a magazine and saw rose pink tulip tiles, and she looked and, and she worked double time on her department store job, and she worked time and a half on her telephone company job, and she bought them rose pink tulip tiles, and she put some on the wall behind her burnt orange stove, and she put some around the wall of her burnt orange sink, and she put some on the sunset orange cabinets for highlight, she said, just like a picture from one of them home decor magazines, she said. Because she wanted a pretty kitchen, a real live pretty kitchen, sure to amaze and dazzle and set the heart to skipping. Pretty kitchen, unlike her mama's and her grandma's and her neighbor with the five kids down the hall. And she worked triple on her department store job, and she worked triple on her telephone company job, and she bought new pots with copper orange bottoms, and she hung them lavishly from a pegboard, and she bought sunrise orange pots, and she swung them elegantly from fluorescent orange hooks, and she bought sunset orange plates, and stacked them according to size and frequency of use in her sunset orange cabinets. Such a grand sight. And not a drip from the faucet was allowed, not a dish rag hanging out to dry was allowed, not a roach or a rat or a man or a child, just like a commercial for spick and span, Ajax or top job. She had a top job of a kitchen, a real life pretty hurt your eyes kitchen, unlike her mama's or her grandma's or her neighbor who had five kids and live down the hall. And when asked the secret of her kitchen's beauty, meaning, does she clean it every day, re-clean it every night? Meaning, does she have a strong arm crew of women come on on weekends with a mammoth supply of Brillo and bug spray and ammonia? Meaning, does she pray, do magic tricks? She smiles as she stands at the door of her pretty kitchen, as if she's at the gates of heaven. And she says, it's simple. And without a doubt, I don't use the damn thing. I just like standing here and checking it out.
This is uh, Good Housekeeping number 17. It was early in the morning before sun or her children rose, and she was at the kitchen sink squeezing pink liquid soap over the previous night's dishes. And she had pink curlers in her hair and a pink frayed terry cloth robe drooped over her shoulders and a worn bra and an overbleached pair of panties peeked from under the pink robe every now and then. And she ran hot water over the dishes and over her hands. And she looked into a bubble and popped it with her spit. And then it happened. Right there in the early morning in her kitchen sink before her own never enough sleep eyes rose Mr. Clean <laughs> with his gold earring in his left ear and his big hands on his hips, and his hips, hands, face, legs, all gold and yellowish with a pale green glow all around. And she put her soapy hands over her wide open mouth, then to her stiffened and disbelief neck. And Mr. Clean with his gold earring in his left ear, and his hands on his hips, and his hips all golden and muscular, winked at her and sparks of light flew from his eyelid. And she covered her breast and Mr. Clean smiled and sparks of light shot from his snow white teeth. And she picked up a nearby knife. And Mr. Clean said, I can make your work disappear. And she held her robe closed with one hand and raised the knife higher with the other. And Mr. Clean pulled on his gold earrings and the knife in every dirty dish disappeared. And she reached for her curlers as though expecting them to go too. And Mr. Clean shook his gleaming hairless head at the stove and every pot and pan disappeared and the stove sparkled. She swayed into a faint, her head bowed, her knees bent, her eyes rolled, her hands flew way above her head. And Mr. Clean saw her go down and scooped her up and held her close and his ammonia and pine-like sudsy smell revived her and he said, I can make your life more enjoyable. <laughs> and he pulled on his gold earring in his left ear, and her curl is left, her robe went, and the worn bra and overbleached panties were zapped away. And she was butt naked in the arms of Mr. Clean. She didn't know what to do. She was speechless, swore her eyes had gone totally bad. And Mr. Clean said, I can make it real good for you. And he smiled and sparks of light covered her thighs. And in all her years of standing at her kitchen sink, her thighs had never been touched by anything, let alone light. And she looked at her thighs all aglow. She looked at her sink and stove all aglow. And she looked at a roach who had been watching the whole damn thing. And she felt something warm and itchy rise from her stomach to the tip of her head. And in all her years of being in the kitchen sink, she had never been as warm before. She had never been held as close before. And she braved a look into Mr. Clean's golden eyes, braved a touch of his gold earring. And somehow, from somewhere, words swelled in her neck. And she said, as she held on to the gold earring, could you make me shine, mister? Could you really, really make me shine forevermore? That's it.
next uh, person who's going to read is Emily Prager, uh, who has written a, uh, the collection of stories called A Visit from the Footbinder, as well as the novel Clea and Zeus Divorce. She's also written a collection for children called World War II Resistance Stories and the I Hate Video Games Handbook. Right. Her work appeared in the 1976 uh, collection Titters, which was the first anthology of uh, humor written by women. She has been a media critic for the Village Voice uh, and for the past 13 years has written a column for Penthouse Magazine. She may be uh, one of the very few um, women in this country writing political satire. Emily's work has been described as the collaboration of an ideologue, a comedian, and the literary artist. Uh, the New York Times called her brash, demonic, raunchy, suavely heartless, quirky, enraged, and alarmed. She has been compared to Aristophanes, Swift, Lamb, Waugh, and Woody Allen. Emily. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, for 13 years, I've written a column for Penthouse Magazine. That's right. I'm a word slave for Bob Guccione. <laughs> and uh, I thought I'd give you a few selections tonight of some of the things I actually write there. Um, as a feminist, uh, I'm in the missionary position over at Penthouse. <laughs> I have a uh, continuing dialogue with my audience, and uh, I write different kinds of things for them. But always uh, because... I'm outraged about something. Um, I write different things, parodies, uh, fantasies, essays, you'll see. I'm going to begin with uh, just a little piece from uh, The Secret Diary of Eva Braun. Uh, this is from September of 1983 and came about, as you recall, they have us the uh, diary of Adolf Hitler, which everybody said was real and then, of course, turned out to be a fraud. So I wrote... The Secret Diary of Eva Braun. Obersalzburg, March 13th, 1938. Damn Austrians, damn them, damn. Adolf was coming this weekend and the Anschluss has ruined it. And Bormann says it's all in the beginning. I never get to see Adolf anymore, never. I'm so lonely. I've read every Nancy Drew there is, and now they stop translating them. What shall I do? I hate this place. I hate Bavaria. Here's a secret for you. Yesterday, I gathered together all the dirndls I could find. Yes, even Frau Goebbels. And I cut them all up and buried them near the tea house. How I laughed, my sad little rebellion. Adolf writes that if I sit tight, he will give me Poland for my patience. Frankly, diary, I'd rather have all sex. <laughs> I haven't been this depressed since the night he murdered Ernst Rom instead of taking me dancing. <laughs> Here's one that I found that's sort of interesting. It's from April of 1984. And it, let's see. Uh, it concerns the Pentagon-sponsored student program, Ronald Reagan's War Corps. It's for kids who missed out on John F. Kennedy's Peace Corps. <laughs> Just write for an application, and if you're accepted, you'll spend two weeks helping Americans make war in strategically located places you never even heard of. 
Whether you're loading shells, carrying the wounded, or just staring open mouth in disbelief, you'll be proud to be part of Ronald Reagan's War Corps, American youth who aid those who aid American interests. Days one and two, the Shoof Mountains, the Beka Valley. What with all the carrying on in Central America, Americans hardly noticed when we sent our troops into the flower of the Levant, Lebanon. Well, we're there, and what better place for students to learn firsthand about escalating a war on foreign soil than in the Shoof Mountains and the Beka Valley. After two nights in the once picturesque mountain village of Hamanah, youngsters will testify to the technological superiority of American A6Es and F-14A fighter bombers. If bombing is a warning, what will we do when we mean business, American kids, asked Drew's militiamen over lunch in the Beka Valley. After assuring captured American airmen that they have Ronald Reagan's full support, students proceed to Beirut, where they tour naval warships and stock up on drugs before it's on today's three and four Ramstein Air Base, Mannheim, West Germany, <laughs> etc. All right. Uh, this is about uh, prayers in school. Pissed me off that. Uh, there was a, a plan, this is from July of 84, there was a plan that maybe we could make up our own prayer and they said we could piss me off, okay. Uh, what Americans decide they can and cannot do has always fascinated me. The issue of prayer in the schools is a perfect example of our latest national mood swing, our most recent episode of ethical contradiction. We can give our national broadcasting systems, the most sophisticated, far-reaching propaganda force in the Western Hemisphere, to a group of advertisers and programmers who evince not one whit of concern for national welfare, morale, decent human values, or the cerebral nurturing of our children, and this with hardly a second thought. But when it comes to the idea of a droplet of mysticism in daily school life, there's a terrific fight, as if the concept of deity could in any way be more damaging to a child's mind than the repetitive violation and degradation that is prime time, or the national bummer that is the evening news. I dare say a few thoughts of God, any God, would hardly find elbow room in the doomed world fantasies of suicidal teens or the adolescent worship of Michael Jackson's glove. So here's the prayer, the American children's prayer. O oh God, substitute here God's Jehovah, Yahweh, external benevolent force, Christ, unknown factor, whatever your preference, okay? O oh God, let the chemical waste dump near my house not leak. Let our rivers not stagnate or the fish within them die from dioxin drained by industries that operate on greed. Let our forests not cease to grow because of an acid rain that can't be traced to any one cartel. Let my mind not be polluted by a television ethic that bonds violence with glamour and sex with ugly comeuppance. Let me have something to look forward to besides my first Coke deal, nuclear war, and Cher's next outfit. Let me respect my fellow humans, even if there's nothing in it for me. Let me remember that when my government escalates a war on foreign soil, the TV news footage of wounded children that I see is real and not a heavy metal video. Let the bacon my mother feeds me, the DES she took while pregnant, the asbestos in my school walls, and the flame retardant in my childhood sleepwear not give me cancer until I'm at least 40. Let my teachers worry about more than my, my reading skills and less about their pay scales. And when I'm kidnapped by a three-time sex offender, Grant that my parents have missing child insurance and let the police give a damn. Amen. All right, this was because, oh, this is, uh, 
this happened when uh, w the minute they started having men's columns and you know all the stuff about men, there were all of a sudden all of these uh, articles about men, their worries and wingtips, uh, letting out the emotional inseam, blah blah blah. Well, I didn't buy it. I thought it was bogus, and uh, I uh, I found uh, I claim to have found here this. Uh, this pamphlet uh, put out by the Men's Macho Gorilla Collective <laughs> called Scoring with Women's Lib, which I think pretty much proves what I was thinking, that it is bogus. All right, meeting women in a bar, one. Once, a guy would go up to a girl and say, hey, baby, can I buy you a drink? Don't try it. Now just get next to her, spill your drink, and as you wipe it up, you say, God, I'm sorry. It's just a... I'm struggling with all these feelings lately. <laughs> you laugh ruefully here. Being a, a human being is kind of new for me. <laughs> I would like to buy you a drink, but I know that would compromise your integrity. So maybe you could buy yourself a drink and then talk to me about ERA. All right. Scoring. You picked her up, you're back at her apartment, sitting on the couch watching TV. Once you might have grabbed her tit and said, you want to fuck? Don't do that. <laughs> now, you shake your head disgustedly and you say, Jesus, you know, TV commercials are so goddamned overtly sexual. It's demeaning, it's degrading to women. I mean, you find yourself, look, I'd like to share something with you. I was just sitting here actually fantasizing, don't hate me for this, <laughs> how it would feel to hold your beautiful nude breast in my hand. Damn, will I never get over these bestial desires? I'm an animal, that's all. I wish I were dead. <laughs> Getting off scot-free, okay, you've gotten your rocks off, you wanna get out clean, no obligations, no repercussions. Once, you would have beat it out the door muttering, don't call me, sweetheart, I'll call you. No way, Jose. Now, you get dressed, and just before you leave, you sit down on the bed and you say, sincerely, you know, you're a genius. No, I mean that. You've taught me a lot today. Get up and pace the room. See, I was brought up to think of women as pieces of meat. It's horrible. I know, and it, and it isn't easy, believe me. My mother was submissive. My father took advantage of her. It's an old story. And tonight, I was trying to think of you that way. And I realized, I can't. You're not just a bimbo. You're not just a girl. If I promise never to do this again, never to pick up a woman and use her solely for my own pleasure, will you try to forgive me? Rise head for the door. It's going to take me a couple of years to get my head straight on this. <laughs> but if and when I do, <laughs> I'm certainly going to call you. So long. All right, I got very pissed off about the fact that there were so many books on Marilyn Monroe, and most of them went on and on and on about the fact that she slept with a lot of people. And these were books f by Norman Mailer and also the book by Gloria Steinem, which was very more, they're all so moralistic about Marilyn Monroe. So I wrote this piece called Marilyn Monroe Talks Back. And uh, 
I'll just read you a little bit of it. Yeah. She says, okay, <laughs> let's just get some facts straight. The Kennedys did not kill me. The mafia did not kill me. I took too many downs, and while I was phoning for a pizza, I died. <laughs> Today, I suppose, they would have sent me off to the Betty Ford Clinic. But then they just drugged us if we were unhappy, or if we were happy, like candy. John Kennedy was nice, but he was a bore in bed because of his back. <laughs> he couldn't move, so what was the big deal? He was sweet, but careless of women, like all men of great power. Bobby was adorable, but a fucker, literally. Always wanting to have children with women. That's what turned him on, and of course we couldn't do that. So he lost interest. You know all these books, they say I was duped. How silly. I defy any woman to tell me she would not have made love with Jack or Bobby Kennedy, or both, if given the chance. <laughs> I did behave like a teenager, but you know, I'd do it again. This woman, Steinem, this, what is it? Feminist? She's the worst of all. She says I did not have orgasms with men, and therefore, I did not like sex, but I point out I did not find my clitoris until 1972, <laughs> 10 years after I was dead. Okay. This is the uh, international uh, paranoia test, which we can take here. All right. Um, just a few from that. Which is likely, most likely, to cause your death? A, falling masonry. B, a bridge collapse. C, an unattended gas leak. D, a stray bullet. <laughs> 10 points for each fear circled. How often do you think about an uncontrolled vehicle careening through a plate glass window of the restaurant you're lunching at? Three times a week, five times a week? Four. Where will you probably be mugged? A, in a vestibule. B, on a subway platform. C, in a parking lot. Or D, in the shower. What will the weapon be? A, a knife, B, a gun, C, a tire iron, D, your can of mace, or E, the mugger's can of mace. <laughs> Which gambit would you use to talk a rapist out of rape? A, humor, B, martial arts, C, a police whistle, D, a hat pin, E, herpes and or AIDS, F, blood curdling screams, G, false comradeship, H, your period, I, Depo Provera. 10 points for each item circled. Double your score if your home has a ground floor without bars on the windows, and good luck to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh. How much time do we have? About a minute. Oh, just a minute? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, in that short period of time, I'm going to read you the uh, two, two things. The this is a piece that was banned by Penthouse. Too outrageous for Penthouse. And whose fault was that? Edwin Meese, who uh, took Penthouse off the stands in the South and made Canada their main market so that now Penthouse falls under the Canadian Censorship Board, all right, who uh, didn't appreciate this piece at all. So because we depend on them for money, I couldn't publish it there, but all right. 
Teenage guys are having terrible problems. The simplest things are going wrong for them. One minute they're heavy petting with their girlfriends, the next she's dead as a doornail and they're doing five to 15 in a minimum security prison. Or say they wrecked dad's car. In the old days they would have been grounded. Today it's a gun battle, their best buddy ends up dead, they're facing five to 15 for armed robbery. It's clear what's going on. Teenage guys don't know what they're doing. Nobody teaches them anything. They learn how to live from television, which is like learning how to drive from videotapes. That's why this month we bring you the 1988 Penthouse How to Live Life Guide for Teenage Guys. Volume one, how to tell if your girlfriend is dying during rough sex. <laughs> one, color. Take my word, you can tell if a girl is dying by the color of her face and skin. A girl who is achieving orgasms gets a small red rash on her chest, her cheeks will flush, her eyes will soften. But a girl who is dying is very different. A girl who is not getting oxygen turns blue. Her tongue flaps out of her mouth like a dead fish. There is panic in her eyes. Oriental teenage guys know these things because they pay attention in science class. If Caucasian preppies weren't... If Caucasian preppies weren't so preoccupied with the grade curve, they wouldn't end up in prison. Two, tone. You know, there's a big difference between a girl screaming for her life and a girl screaming with pleasure. Though they both may say, help me, or oh no, or stop, it's the tone that will clue you in. The orgasm tone is a stop but don't stop purring tone. The death tone is a lot more hysterical and anxious, a kind of last-ditch effort tone you may never have heard unless you recently drowned puppies. What if she's using a gag, you asked? Well, better be safe than sorry. If a girl in a gag is making a lot of muffled noises, remove the gag and ask her if anything's wrong. You needn't worry. Removing a gag from a girl's mouth will not stop her orgasm. You can quote me on that. Three, flailing. You've heard the phrase, fighting for your life. That's what girls do when they're in danger of dying but don't want to. You've never heard the phrase, fighting for your orgasm, because... You can't have one if you fight it. You have to relax and succumb to it. So if you've bound and gagged a girl to a chair and you see she's jerking, trying to chip the chair over, struggling a lot, she's not coming. She's frantic. Game's over. If you're doing the noose around the neck orgasm thing that TV tells you teens love, her arms will be free so you can easily see her clutching at the air like a drowning man and figure it out from there. When girls come... They want to hug you, not push you away, or punch you in the nose. Oh All right. Was that published women. anywhere? No. That wasn't what is that? Okay. There's one wow. tiny thing. Where is it? That's oh, okay. But just this is very short. But it's well. it's germane to what we're talking about. Okay. This, I wanted to read this to you because it's interesting and because we're trying to talk about what we do. But anyway, this is something that was published in... This is the first thing I ever had published. It was published in the newspaper when I was five years old. And I think you'd be interested in it in terms of 
you know, how people develop. It's called, it's very short, it's a novel, but it's short. It's called, <laughs> Cinderella Goes to the Ball and Breaks Her Leg. <laughs> Preface. This is a special book about Cinderella and the Charming Prince, where Cinderella has a baby sister. A baby sister who has no home, and she got her out of the river. It was the Mississippi River. The story. Cinderella's telephone number is 442-879. Cinderella plays jacks with a bullet. In Cinderella's pocket, it, expl it explodes. It doesn't disturb them at all. Today is Cinderella's birthday. They're having a great time, but Cinderella falls and breaks her leg. They sing over the rainbow. The porter runs and tells all the people at the party that Cinderella broke her leg. She's out in the hall. All the people call the doctors, and millions of doctors come. Oh, we didn't expect to have a million doctors. This one girl has a broken leg. Do you have another broken leg, one doctor asks. And Cinderella says, yes, we can fix those broken legs in a jiffy. The porter breaks his leg. The doctors leave Cinderella and go out and fix his leg. All the lights go out. This is in the daytime. Cinderella gets a surprise for her leg. It's a new garter. There were doctors, ministers, judges, church people, little girls, little boys, big men, big ladies, officers, and monkeys. The church people break their legs, and the monkeys come in and break their legs. After that, everybody lives happily ever after, and Cinderella has a ball. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. Uh, and the last person we have uh, greeting and talking tonight is Linda Shore, who has published two collections of stories called Appetites. Um, one is called Appetites, the other is called True Love and Real Romance. Her fiction has appeared in Ms. Magazine, Red Book, The Village Voice, and many other places. She teaches writing at the Eugene Lang College uh, of the New School. Her stories are satiric, uh, farcical, often outrageous, and um, perhaps offensive de depictions of contemporary relations between the sexes. Somebody else put in the perhaps offensive. I leave that to be judged. Uh, Gloria Steinem said of her, quote, she turns over the rock of female experience and reveals the truth underneath, close quote. And then there's another quote I'd like to read you. Uh, this is from Ellen Willis says, Linda Shore's fiction is erotic, funny, sinister, cynical, compassionate, aggressive, totally eccentric, and horribly universal. About half the stories are about this woman, a long-suffering mother. She's not mad exactly. It's just that you would never mistake her for anyone else except maybe yourself. Linda? Hi. Um, I'm reading last because my name starts with an S. Um, okay. Um, my stories are very long, so um, I didn't do what Carol M. Schwiller did. I just picked a chunk in the middle of one story, so I guess I'll have to synopsize it a little bit. Um, the story is called The Horse, and, um, and it's about a couple who live in the suburbs, and um, the woman notices that the man has gotten rid of their car and gotten a horse instead, which he rides to work every day. Um, but then she suspects something is funny about both their relationship and something going on with the horse. So uh, she spies a little bit and finds them in the garage, which is fitted out as a stable, um, having sex plus a picnic. 
And then she becomes more curious and, um, and goes and sort of, you know, gets a crush on the horse herself. And um, they fall in love, too. And um, then one day the husband sees her having sex with the horse. And he says nothing. And then the next day when she comes home from shopping, she finds the horse stuffed on their front lawn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't see. This time when she opened the door to the garage, it was with a fear of relating to the horse, not so much the fear of being discovered. She was fearful of being rejected. She opened the door swiftly. After all, it was her garage too who had worked to finish putting Marvin through music school and then law school. She was wearing something that exposed her midriff and her navel, which she felt was the most sensuous part of her body. And she had rubbed some musk body oil into it and rubbed it into her hair. The garage still stank, but the stench had sexual implications to Isabel by this time. One quality the horse possessed that Isabel loved, as she saw him turn his head and look at her without surprise, was his acceptance of everything. He had such a totally open expression. She felt she could be perfectly free with him, be herself for once. There was nothing he expected of her or an image he seemed to have of her which he projected and that she had to fulfill or else risk his love being withdrawn. She had the feeling that with this horse, she could be as passionate as she liked or do anything she liked without turning him off. She rolled the garage door down behind her and turned to face the horse, who was standing there looking bored, nudging a pile of hay, but not eating. He looked directly into her eyes, and she felt as if she were floating, and her whole body was being absorbed into his through those orbs. And when his nostrils twitched, she felt a mad feeling of love and desire. She realized that it was the angle at which his nose swept down from his brow, and the way it flared out a bit at the bottom that was so incredibly sensual to her, almost as if that simple aesthetic combination could, like magic, be the whole cause of this passion. She stood there for a moment before walking over to him. With great joy, she saw that he was walking over to her first, and she was pleased that he was making some kind of move. The fact that he was like all her fantasies of the past days come true. As if aware of her attempts to be seductive, the horse sniffed her navel with his moist, quivering nostrils. Isabel was too happy to feel anything more than just elation at being there. She looked more closely at him, touched his face gently, snuffled his mane with her nose. When he lifted one thin black lip for one moment, she noticed that his large front teeth weren't even. One stuck out in front of the other. As she was having dental work done and had temporary jackets on, one of her front teeth stuck out in front of the other, too. She whispered goodbye to the horse. It seemed extremely symbolic that they had similar teeth. As she walked down the driveway, she wondered why, after all those sexual fantasies, she didn't actually feel like having sex with the horse when she was with him. She recalled what Marvin had said when she had first met him. I like to get to know someone before I go to bed with them, do you? And the horse didn't press her either. She was <laughs> glad he felt the same way.
The next day, when Marvin went into the garage before he left for work, Isabel felt an unexpected twinge of jealousy since he'd already spent the night in there. As soon as he was gone, she rummaged around for some kind of offering or gift she and the horse could enjoy together. For a moment, she couldn't think what horses liked besides sugar, which was no good for his teeth, and which she wouldn't be able to partake of with him, then decided on two magnificent reddish-black apples. This was the first time in a long while that she felt really excited to be alive. She experienced a strong sense of release and abandon. She went out in her nightgown, barefoot, an apple in each hand, like Eve. She thought, as she opened the garage door, that maybe she should clean it up a bit, tidy it, and get rid of that odor. And then she realized that she didn't want that kind of relationship again. <laughs> she wasn't willing to have her ability to clean be one of her desirable traits. If he didn't like her this way, too bad. The horse looked up when she entered, but he never looked surprised. That was one of the qualities she found fascinating about him. She held the apple out to him, and he nudged it for a moment with his soft mouth closed. Then he raised one of his lips in a weird way, and Isabel saw his crooked tooth. For one horrible moment, she thought, what am I doing here with this ugly creature? But in a second, that passed. The horse... <laughs> The horse took one bite of the apple, which nearly obliterated it, core and all, except for a tiny piece left sitting in her hand, which revealed a glaring whiteness in contrast to the almost black skin and two tiny capillaries of maroon. In surprise, she handed over the second apple, which at first he only sniffed, as he was still chewing the other, with sideways motions of his head and some slobbering. She watched him with wonder, realizing how well she knew Marvin and how strange this was. The horse stopped chewing for a moment, looked into Isabel's eyes, wrapped his mouth around her whole apple, and remained that way with his soft lips touching her palm. For the first time since she'd watched Marvin and the horse, she felt sexually excited. As the horse finished her apple too, she said, you pig, and laughed. Marvin was a slob and a hog, too, but this horse was even worse. <laughs> Somehow she felt all her standards for men or lovers drop away. <laughs> she felt flexible, able to accept, to find out, free. It doesn't matter, she told herself. I can afford this relationship now. <laughs> she touched the horse all over his soft face with its coating of short, soft fur, like suede, ran her fingers across his eyelids, causing him to close his eyes and flare his nostrils in that way that appealed to her so much. She put her nose against his and felt his warm breath surround her face like a general electric facial sauna, and an enormous feeling of desire and abandon overcame her. She began kissing the horse wildly all over his gentle furred protuberances and concavities, all new to her, grabbed his soft, silky mane, and clutching the light brown hair tightly, buried her fists in it, while the horse, his nose becoming hot, nuzzled her all over. She collapsed where she'd been standing, not caring whether it was clean or not, and closed her eyes. For an instant, she reminded herself of Marvin. The horse took her nightgown between his teeth and lifted it. He pressed his lips gently all over her sentient body, just a soft pressure with gentle furred edges that drove her wild. He pressed, gently pressed into her pubic hair and along the insides of her thighs, which she spread for him in abandon. 
She could never picture doing this with Marvin, though she felt like it once in a while, as Marvin would think she was lewd. <laughs> she had the feeling that it would frighten Marvin. The horse continued his gentle pressure all over her body, and again and again she felt his hot nose and lips press her pubic hair and her hidden clitoris. She raised her hips off the garage floor and felt the horse's large, flat tongue with a firm, muscular pressure press in between her labia, felt its wet heat encompass her clitoris for a moment before sliding down its length, giving her the most voluptuous sensation she'd ever imagined, and then pressed slightly into the opening of her vagina and returned slowly upward again. She had a desire to move her hips, but wanting to prolong everything and enjoying the horse who needed no assistance in pleasing her, she allowed, even consciously trying to remain still, the horse to repeat his slow, endless licks from one end of her labial opening to the other, penetrating subtly, increasingly deeper into her vagina each time he passed it, and she, allowing the waves of sensation, which she felt all over her body and deeply into her thighs, to sweep over her until they became greater and greater, too much to bear. No, she couldn't bear them. She began to moan, but the horse retained his slowness, and she began to grunt and shout, no, 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 as she felt her body contract endlessly. The walls of her vagina clenched tightly around the horse's whole trembling tongue. She felt her eyes roll into their sockets, and then she relaxed. The horse began nudging her on the side. For an instant, she felt annoyance and no desire to do anything more until she saw the horse's penis floating toward her, bobbing up and down lightly as if in water. Defying gravity, it hung there, not down, but almost parallel with the horse's underbelly, its thick tip practically staring her in the eye. She allowed the horse to push her limp body over as he might one of the empty sacks, and she lay there on her stomach, her nightgown across her neck, and through one armhole, like a banner worn in a Miss America pageant. <laughs> she lay there for a moment and found herself not relating to him at all. She was lying on some coarse muslin sack and gently brushed her fingers along one spot as she often did while falling asleep, feeling the soft brush of the fabric with the very tips of her fingers. She looked up for a moment and saw, glowing like a pink fluorescent light bulb, the horse's cock. Then she felt it move under her from behind until it rubbed her clitoris as the tip pushed all the way in front, touching her belly. She became excited again, but was slightly terrified by the size of the horse's organ, which she hadn't realized was that enormous. She had an urge to run, then thought it wouldn't be fair to run off without satisfying the horse. <laughs> she, <laughs> she raised herself onto her hands and knees, as she'd seen Marvin do, and she could see by looking down under herself the horse's bulbous organ now appearing. <laughs> Is someone throwing up? <laughs> now appearing dark against her own white skin lying under her, almost reaching to her breasts. Then she watched it moving away slowly, like being in the last car of a train and watching through the tunnel as the train begins to move. And she felt its whole length move back along her vaginal opening. The horse repeated this movement a few times, and Isabel watched from underneath as the penis came toward her and retreated until she had to close her eyes and strain her whole body back. She no longer cared how large his penis was. She could absorb it. 
She pushed back more and more, felt him insert the tip, just the tip, gently into her where it remained still, stretching her tightly and feeling heavy, an incredible weight, like a pressurized balloon. She pressed back more until her whole vagina felt filled, no, her whole body, like a turkey ready for the oven. <laughs> Then he began moving harder, harder and harder, gentle but still hurting somewhat, a hurt that she knew she was enjoying as she cried with pain and pleasure, and the horse neighed as he came. <laughs> then she realized she'd forgotten her diaphragm. <laughs> she wondered where the horse sperm fertilized human eggs. Would she give birth to a centaur? Even the horse's detumescent penis fitted her so tightly it made a small pop as he removed it, like the swollen cork in vintage wine. She caressed his underbelly lovingly, amazed at the incredible consideration and gentleness he'd shown in restraining the major portion of his strength not to hurt her. She lay for a moment inside the C-shape that he made when lying on his side with his forelegs straight out, protected as if in a cave, a warm cave, and she had no idea how much time had passed. She began to feel panicky. She arose feeling dirty and scrubby for the first time and brushed herself off. She felt she should say something to the horse since they just made love and she didn't want him to think she wanted him only for sex. <laughs> she looked at him wondering whether he expected anything and it appeared as if he didn't. He still had his blank, open expression, but warmer, tired, lids hanging lower, relaxed, slicing his eye in half. She noticed some grit in the corner of each eye and for want of any other expression of tenderness, picked it out with great pleasure and scraped the little bit of dried moisture that looked like an old tear from underneath the grit, stroked his silky nose and departed. Her neighbors saw her running down the driveway in her nightgown, hopping gingerly through the gravel in mid-afternoon. Rosalie stopped her as she opened the screen door. What are you doing in your nightgown at this time of day? You sure have a leisurely life. <laughs> oh, I was just cleaning out the garage for the horse, said Isabel, blushing. I began in the morning, got so involved I hadn't realized what time it was. <laughs> it was true that now, outside the barn, her life had the aspect of a dream. She couldn't get everything connected and felt strangely discombobulated. Standing there talking with Rosalie, she felt all the horse's seminal fluid running thickly down one leg past the bottom of her white permanent press cotton batiste nightgown. Then, as if once begun, it couldn't be contained. It began running down the other leg, too, <laughs> tickling annoyingly. Isabel said, I think I left the oven on and ran inside. Is Rosalie watched Isabel close the door behind her, the back of her hair and nightgown covered with straw. Well, that's really it. That's one. Okay. Um, uh, well, thank you, Linda. Um, <laughs> I, my, my only question is, did you get any money from the NEA? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I've never gotten a penny from and, the NEA. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this, is, uh, this is now open for... Um, Comments, uh, questions, and, um, and and 
You must have questions. I certainly have a lot of questions. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll ask the first one then. Um, I, I sense in, in what a couple of you said, a certain ambivalence about uh, feminism, what you said, Carol. Um, well, Emily, um, you have to work for Penthouse. And I just, I, so my question was for all of you really, uh, and the kind of writing you do, um, whether you think um, feminism seen as a community, a movement, a collection of friends of yours, whatever, um, has been a supportive, encouraging environment for the kind of work you do in no. the last 10 years. Okay, no. Emily, go ahead. Definitely not, definitely not. The reason that I work at Penthouse is because they will publish what I write. Uh, um, I tried in the beginning to, to write things for Ms. and other people like that, but, but they would never, you know, they always wanted to, to bland out everything I was trying to say. And so, anyway, I'm not a feminist, really. I'm a female supremacist, which is a <laughs> little different. <laughs> yeah. I assume superiority, you know. I assume equality. I don't seek it. Okay. Other? Anyway, no, is the answer. <laughs> okay, well, well, I would definitely have to call myself a feminist, although the word, I guess, is a big problem. Um, you know, the definition of the word and, and what ev everybody thinks it stands for. Um, I, I agree with Emily, you know, in a sense. At the beginning, um, it was very liberating to be part of the movement, and then uh, the, the feminist thought police started to take over and, uh, you know, you weren't allowed any ambiguity of feeling or, or any of your old, any portrayal of, you know, of any kind of thing that wasn't, um, I guess, politically correct. And, you know, when that happens, it's kind of deadening for any kind of art. Um, I, I will still, you know, consider myself a very staunch feminist and do whatever I can for the woman's movement. Humor was another thing. Right. You weren't allowed. <laughs> You're not allowed to be humorous. Right, because you can't think any of these things are funny, which satire isn't, though. It isn't the same as humor, and it doesn't mean that you think something is funny. It means that you think something is often hideous. Um, Sophia? Anybody else? Carol? Wilson? No. Same. Linda said... Linda said some of, some of the things that I think, but I don't even know why I had this feeling. And I would support, you know, going through the movement, like you were saying, was wonderful. It was liberating. And I don't know why I have this. I've been trying to think about it. But I, I, all I know is I was very happy to see that I make fun of everybody. And you do too, of course. You just did. <laughs> and um, I don't know why. I really haven't, I haven't been able to figure out why I have this feeling. On the question, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's really like um, pretty um, hard to bring us all back to this discussion of feminism after we've broadened ourselves so well. So um, uh, I think when any of the isms, any of the struggles become part of the marketplace. They become very dangerous, and I think feminism and um, struggle, you know, when they can market, you know, who we are, uh, 
the nest when we have to question what we've been fighting for in the first place. So if you have to have a label to do what you have to do in a human way, then it's problematic in the first place. Rosam, Well, I, I, I got very quiet because a lot of time passed from when I was reading. Um, I, it's, it's late in the day for me to talk about feminism. I, I think I've always been a feminist. And uh, it's in my work, and uh, it's in my bedroom a lot. Um, there's a lot of fighting that goes on that nobody knows about, of course. And uh, so I, I really, it's not a subject I wanted to talk about. I feel very strongly about it, but not conversationally. Okay, it's your turn, people out there. Ask, make comments, yes? No, it's it's well, it's just what I do. I mean, I you mean can I write so that it isn't funny? Oh yes. <laughs> Frequently. Huh. Well, I find that, you know, in the, since I'm writing in penthouse most of my satire lately, that that the way the best way to get the point across, you know, is, is to write humor, because people like to read humor. You know, they'll accept things in a humorous way that they would never accept in a serious manner. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that's the... I just think it's the best way to go about it and the most fun. Anybody else want to comment on that question? And, Carol, part of it, I think, was addressed to you. Well, I never picked... I never picked, um, sa- I never picked satire. Um, I never decided to write humorously... Um, I, I, when I found my writing voice, if that's the way to say it, uh, that's what it was. But I do know that I do write serious stories every now and then that are not funny and not satiric. I never think they're important. I always feel, oh, I'm doing something that really is meaningless because it's not funny. And um, I don't know. Uh, I, th- that I really have a true feeling about that. I feel that the most important things that I do, at least, are the ones that come out in a, in a humorous way. Um, I don't want to th- I, I, I'd like to think that nothing is serious. I mean, that you don't have to take anything seriously at all, and uh, nothing in the world is... is uh, and in order to hit more deeply, I think you have to hit the funny way. Um, yes, Grace Paley, right? I know it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Not just a, I mean, it's not a feminist novel alone. 
<laughs> That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> I would want. I, I wanted to be an everything novel, like it's saying. I would hope it's just everything. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Is that a hand in the back? Yeah. What what makes your work feminist? Uh, <laughs> well, I I guess what makes mine feminist is that I think I have two concerns in life. One, two missions. If I look at all this stuff, one one of those missions is uh, to expose any kind of political hypocrisy that I see, and the other one is uh, the sexual liberation of women because I firmly believe that until women are fully sexually liberated, until uh, prostitution is legalized, until there are not outcast populations of women because of their sexual carryings on, uh, there will be no ERA. This is my belief. And if you look at everything, if I look at everything that I've ever written, all the fiction, all the humor pieces, everything, there's just a line. It's like a you know, being hit over the head with a board that's about that, you know, just stop, you know, stop this attitude, you know, toward women. All women have to be accepted. All women should be able to do whatever they want sexually, whenever they want, with whoever they want, at any time. And my belief is that society actually doesn't allow this. Therefore, you know, we are constricted uh, for good and all. And so I think that's why I think my writing is feminist. Others question now. How is your writing feminist, Rosalind? I'm just going to call on you because you haven't really well, taken enough. I didn't know that we were going to be talking about feminism. I mean, uh, like uh, I have a couple of silly ideas from early on. Um, early on, uh, fem- when feminism, like uh, when we um, liberated McSorley's Tavern, I thought that was very silly. But we were there, and I was pushing my way in. There was this little old man, like shaking, and he said, "Why do Why do you want to come in?" I said. Um, because you should be allowed to, uh, to uh, drink and eat wherever you, wherever you want to, no matter uh, what sex you are. And, and the point is, like, I never really wanted to go into McSorley's or anything. And then we finally got in there, and there's all these guys half drunk, like, sitting around drinking beer. And, uh, and, then, and then one of one of my friends, I forget who it was, said, okay, now let's liberate the toilets. Uh, uh, I you know, I mean, so you should, I don't know. I, it, funny thing is, I just uh, heard that uh, that somebody got arrested recently for she had to pee, and the only available toilet was was the was the men's toilet. Like, and she got into trouble doing that. So maybe silly things turn out to be serious sometimes. I mean, this is kind of fun. Another thing I remember uh, early on was a Christmas tree. And uh, and uh, hung with uh, tampons at the time, yes. And then uh, these tampons reappeared in uh, women's paintings. And then it got to be like really uh, fascistic because certain women said you're 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 not a feminist unless uh, the images in your paintings are all circles. I mean, you do a rectangle <laughs> or a, a vertical, and 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 you're not you're not one of us. You know, like you're a renegade. Um, so I thought that like it was getting real fascistic uh, in in those ways it was kind of silly. And I, I think like uh, feminism is when you feel that there's that there's a, a wrong that has to be 
that has to be righted, something in the quality of life with, uh, we're not talking about like more, more money and all that, but, uh, but the whole relationship between the sexes. You can be as feminist as you want, but if you get caught in a, in a family situation, it's gonna be really difficult, you know? So like I always have this, this double thing of, of being strong and knowing what I want and knowing what w w women should have and, and, and get and like be free to express yourself and all that and hand in hand walking through the streets and all. And then y you get home, you know, and, and it's a real pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's real difficult. Um, so I, I don't know what to say about feminism. It does pop into my work. Uh, it, it, it really does because it's, it's an inner concern of mine. It's something that I'm fighting all the time. And, and I think that maybe when I'm, I'm pretty old now, but when I get even older, that maybe there'll be a space for me to get back again to be an individual person who, who isn't um, um, oppressed. See, uh, I think all women don't want to be oppressed. They just want to be free and open to do good and to good, do good for themselves and do, to do good for others. And um, that's what I feel. Well, I just want to say one thing. I sort of would like to direct this conversation from, from feminism itself as a single thing. Um, I, I've already admitted to being a feminist, so that's not the problem. Um, I think that one reason I'm a feminist in my work, and, and I'd hope that, you know, like Carol, that there's lots of other things in my work. I'm, I'm sort of truly fascinated by exposing injustice of any kind, um, I'm interested in class, which of course we all know doesn't exist in this country. Um, you know, racial issues and, um, and all types of things like that. So I think feminism is, you know, or, you know, the oppression of women is part of other kinds of oppression. Animal rights? Anybody, anybody else want to comment on this question? <laughs> if I slept with a horse, it would probably kick me in the head. I mean, that's a very docile horse you have there. <laughs> it, it's a very feminist horse. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anybody else who wants to comment, uh, answer this man's question on how feminism shows up in your work? Well, um, I never really thought about whether or not feminism showed up in my work. Um, I'm sitting here as, um, I guess, representing Im image-wise a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And so I think my work reflects that. I talk about, you know, who I am as African-American female living in the United States of America in the 20th century, and it can be like, you know, everything I fought for and ev is everything I... I write about, whether it's women's issues, racism, sexism, trying to get my kid into a decent school, getting the job, Central America, South Africa, Israel. I mean, I have a job to do as a human being, and when I take a stand, it's a stand, you know, from that position, and I'm female, and I know I have to push for those issues that are feminine and female, but I have a big job to do in the whole world, and, you know, racially, gender, you know, parental-wise, the whole bit. So I never really, like, take all of the time to say, well, am I doing this because of my feminist beliefs? Am I doing this because of my, 
I don't do that. There's things I have to talk about and things I have to write about and um, struggles I have to commit myself to. And that's the bottom line. Yes, I'm not telling. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Emily, go ahead. Where do your jokes come from? Uh, uh, well, I do a lot of research. I do watch the evening news. I do read Time and Newsweek. I do pay great attention to uh, what goes on. I'm, I'm a, uh, um, a fantasist who does research, uh, though Tom Wolfe doesn't believe they exist. Um, and then it's like, uh, well, the, the obvious one, you know, um, Adolf Hitler's diary comes along, and immediately I think, you know, Eva Braun's diary. I've also done Mrs. Mao's Little Red Book. You can, uh, um, let's see. Uh, things that happen. Uh, the fiction writer's media image trivia test was one thing, because I saw Truman Capote on television, and the first question was, uh, what, famous, what modern fiction writer learned to shoot up from Sonny Von Bulow? Oh, okay. Truman Capote. That's the answer, which he said on Merv Griffin. So, you know, I was watching Merv Griffin. There's Truman Capote sitting there. And he says, I'm yeah, and she taught me how to put it in my vein. And there you are. There's the question. What modern fiction writer learned to shoot up from Sonny Von Bulow? Now, I didn't make that up. That's what it is. But it's partially turning that into a joke. Um, a long time ago, they used to say that women weren't funny when I first started writing humor. And I say, I don't know why they say women aren't funny. Every time a man dresses up like one, he gets a laugh. <laughs> or maybe I'm missing something, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's just a, kind of a turn of mind. It's a, a way that you look, you know, I was sort of born looking at this way, obviously, with this way of life. I don't, I don't exactly know why. There's a question right there? In the purple, or...? Yeah. Right. Well, like I was saying, I mean, you know, now I'm up against the censorship board of Canada. In that piece I read, you had to tell if your girlfriend is dying during rough sex. They wanted things taken out. They wanted the gag in the mouth taken out because they said it was sexist. They, wanted, they didn't want to use the phrase rough sex. Now, of course, all these things were taken from Time magazine, those three cases of rough sex that were going on. Everything in there, the, the gag in the mouth, bound to a chair, all that stuff was in the news, right? I didn't make this up. So they considered this sexist. I also had a big fight with them over... Was um, I wrote a piece for teen, again for teenage boys on what it means to be a man, and I had um, what was it about uh, uh, 
Oh, shit. I can't. I can't remember. I was talking about rape. Rape and sex not being the same thing. I was trying to tell them, you know, some things they didn't know. And what, the question was, there were questions, oh, questions teenage boys ask. What's the difference between rape and sex? Is there one? All right. And um, I said that there was a difference between rape and sex, you know, and I elaborated for a while, and I said that rape, I had the phrase, rape was a violent, I said when you, you, you have sex with somebody and they don't want you, you've entered the world of violent crime, and there's no difference between you and Richard Speck, except he's professional. And they wanted me to take out violent crime. Violent crime. But this is, so this is the kind of thinking. This is all because of Ed Meese and his idiot censorship program. So I do. I, I now have to toe the line and to a certain extent. I haven't ri- written as hard-hitting a piece as how to tell if your girlfriend is dying to rough sex in, law, in a while for that reason because they're not going to risk their being taken off the market in Canada for me. You know, that's just that's a reality of life I have to live with now, and it's annoying. But I don't think there's any question that the, the present... Uh, you know, uh, post-Reaganite and post-Reaganite period of time has been very constrictive if you're, uh, uh, you know, in any way considered, uh, I don't know, pornographic or whatever, you know, really outrageous. No question about it at all. But generally, if you write for an editor who likes your stuff, they like your stuff. And I always generally also feel that if you can make somebody laugh really hard, that it really doesn't matter, you know, what you're saying. But I have been rarely... Uh, been able to write for women's magazines because you always have to have an upending and, you know, it's too, it's too mean and women don't like politics and a whole bunch of other bullshit. Well, in the last, uh, I'd say, maybe eight or ten years, uh, I just can't force people to um, accept the disgusting stuff I write, you know, so... So actually, I've sort of had to pull back from the marketplace a little bit in order to um, regain, you know, a pleasure in writing that I used to get when I, you know, when I felt free to, um, to really, you know, say what I really thought was truthful and meaningful to me. Um, I, I think these are very hard times for anyone who's slightly counterculture, you know, and who wants to say anything that in any way, sexually or any other way, um, doesn't reflect what, you know, what's going on outside or what the media tells us or, or anything, you know, that might um, be political or revolutionary in any way. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's very hard to, you know, to, to move against this force um, unless maybe you're part of a larger group of people who um, <coughs> who want to have the guts to do it, but it's it's just pretty hard to do it alone. And I still enjoy writing and everything, but I mean it would be nearly impossible for me to fill the requirements of the marketplace. Just impossible. Mm-hmm. Anybody else want to comment on that question?
I write about George Bush all the time, but clearly you don't read Penthouse. That's the problem. <laughs> I do, too. I do, do too. I try. Anybody else? I Anybody else too. bashing George Bush recently here? Everyone. I just... Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. You can't get it published? I don't know. I saw Louis Lappin the other night talking about this, too, about our, on Channel 13 that... You know, democracy is argument, and there's less argument. You know, you're up against a lot of things with corporate America right now. A lot of, of you know, backing of magazines and so forth and so on. It's, it is difficult. Well, you know, I don't, truly, it's very, very difficult to write about politics in any place that women would read because they do not believe that women are interested in politics. I mean, aside from newspapers, I can tell you this. This is absolutely true. Am I wrong about this? Well, I, I agree. In my own experience, I feel like I've been driven out of the women's magazines absolutely. for exactly the reasons right. Emily said. Everything has to be upbeat, upscale, right. um, and written to a certain formula because of the contempt of the editors for women, which may women could do something about. Um, but they by, don't. They don't. You know, I mean, the, Nobody's more clamoring women's magazines could be a place where every woman... Actually, the only woman who, who has politics in a magazine is Tina Brown. It's the only women's magazine probably in history that has ever had continuing political stuff written by Tim Allman, who goes and interviews. They're basically sort of like profiles, but that's it. Right. Well, yeah. But that, well, this is an ongoing political commentary, you know? Well, women writers are certainly submitting the... Uh, well, one way to get ahead for women in this culture is to adopt uh, males' patterns of, you know, achieving success, to work with them, to marry them, etc. And so then you have no revolution. <laughs> I think Carol wrote that story. If there's, is there one last uh, question or comment? Any I have a question for, oh, the, for the panel. Well, there's one, let me get this person her hand up. Sorry. I think there is a problem, you know, there's a problem with the word and the many definitions that it could have. And, um, and in a way, there is a lot of bad press about feminism. And, um, and in a way, also, if you say you're a feminist, then maybe you're limiting yourself. You know, maybe it's not enough. But on the other hand, um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's useless not to admit it. Feminism could be anything that you want to define it as, you know. I mean, you can make your own definition of it if, if uh, whatever is out there doesn't work for you. There is no one definition. I, I, you know, I dare you to look it up. Men have a totally different definition of it. I think it's important to, to bear witness and to document it, and that's very important to me. That's, that's feminism. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I have no reluctance about it at all. Uh, but, but there was some reluctance, of, uh, it seemed to me, 
uh, among, you know, whatever the political people to, to actually accept me as a feminist. It was uh, male reviewers reviewing the Footbinder who actually s- said the word feminist about me. Before that, it seemed that, you know, and even when the, the Footbinder wasn't embraced, you know. In, in England, for example, I, I actually was attacked in the Sunday Times for, by a, a woman who interviewed me as being really suspect, you know. Like, who, what is it with this girl? Um, which leads me to a question I actually wanted to ask, which was about outrage. I mean, all of you write about things that, you know, your mother and grandmothers, well, most of you, you know, would be really embarrassed, you know, to read. Well, my mother said, it's okay, Rosie. It's only words on paper. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mother said, just make money. <laughs> One more question here, unless somebody's... Oh, yeah. Well, what, tell us, what is your book? Now, now we want to know, what is your book? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. All right. Th- right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. This, uh, I wondered. <laughs> I wondered if Carol or Sathya had any um, comments because you, you didn't say anything in the last round because we're just about done here. Any last well, comment? Um, I think I just had a thought about um, the question or the thought that was raised um, by um, I think the woman in the back in the green when she said she just felt a hesitancy about you know, owning up to your feminism or your position or something like that. But, um, like I said, I, you know, I really, I'm just listening to the whole realm of the conversation from the moment we started to this point. I'm really not sure how we got into trying to define it. Um, I think, like someone said, if you do try to find a definition that it, it isn't any one set of rules to play this game. You just have to play it really hard, and you have to play it to win. I have to play it to win as a female. I have to play it to win as an African-American female. And it's across the world for me. It's not just the United States. It's like wherever I am, my sex, wherever I am, women of color, people of color. 
And I don't think it's a hesitancy on my part or the women up here to say whether we are or we aren't. You know, I think um, it's how we're playing this game and we're playing it to win with our work and with the organizations and, you know, situations that we find ourselves in working like that. I don't think it's, you know, something to get all down and funky and discuss about so long, <laughs> you know? Did you have a last word, Carol? Oh, I don't, I hope it's not, I, I don't know whether it's worth the last, but I was realizing as I was sitting here what, what I do feel um, about how uh, feminism is limiting in a certain sense, although all the, the, you know, the money, the job, that whole thing, the polit- politics, I'm for that, but the older I get, the sadder and the more I feel sorry for men, particularly older men. Um, I think they've been stunted, older men in particular, in a way that women never were. And I think that's why I feel, I really feel sorry for them. I have two short things I want to say is that um, your sympathy is misplaced. I'm... I'm waiting for these these dinosaurs to become extinct. Um, gee, and I forgot what, what the other stuff is I wanted to say. <laughs> okay. Well, they may have okay. power, but they sure can't talk. I could, we could, talk we could really they just can't be, relate to people. We could really just be starting now. Uh, I mean, we could go on and on. But I, want, I think we should thank all the, uh, the writers here who... Um, Were terrific, and also thanks to thank to you uh, to you for being a, uh, a great and sensitive and intelligent and challenging bunch of people to talk to. Thank them.